Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in, in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the holy word of God. Amen. How's everybody doing this morning? Thank you. So if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through a sermon series. We're working through the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And if you haven't been with us, we've been working through a sermon series, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, just so you know. <laughs> Our theme verse for the series was 1 Timothy 4.16. It says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching doctrine. And persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we don't stop here. We are to continue studying and wrestling with the Christian doctrines in our everyday lives. I was asked to give a summary of the last nine weeks. And we have a lot to cover, don't we? So, uh, doctrine is typically taught in a systematic fashion. And what that means is we look at what does the whole Bible have to say about a particular subject, and then we define that subject based off what the whole Bible says about it. Okay, It's typically taught systematically. It's also taught... As, as like a storyline. So we're going to look at that storyline today, okay? So first, let me quickly remind you why doctrine matters. 
you remember the very first sermon, Ray told you a story about pilots flying into storms. You guys remember that? And they, they must be instrument trained, right? Because they're flying into a storm. They can't see. They can't, they can't, they don't know what's happening. They're, everything in, in them says, don't do this. But, but their instruments are saying, nope, you're fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. How many of you have, have maybe thought or, or said something like, well, you know, my God is not this way. Or, or my God would never, ever do that. Never? How do you know? Prove it. You see, we don't get to decide who God is to us or what he's like or how he rules his world. He is the God who makes himself known. And as Patrick Morley said, we need to stop chasing the God we want and surrender to the God who is. So I'm going to quickly summarize the last eight weeks. And hopefully I've made it simple enough to follow along in your notes. There's a lot there. Sorry about the small print. But we're going to look... We're going to look through those eight doctrines, and then after, we're going to look at our theme verse, and I have four major points that really drive home the reality that doctrine does, in fact, really matter. So before we begin, let's pray, as we all desperately need the help of the Spirit to open our eyes to God's Word, which reveals these doctrines. So let's pray together. Our holy Holy, holy God, we confess to you that too often we think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of you. Forgive us for not persisting in watching our life and our doctrine in the way that we should. Please, God, give us a deep and unquenchable desire for your word. Help us to love your statutes and to strive to understand all that you've taught us through your word. We praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. We praise you, Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm going to go through each doctrine, and I'm going to answer two questions. What is it, and why is it important? We've got a lot to cover, so we're just going to get rolling. So D, who remembers the D? Deity, deity of Christ. That's right. So what is it? The deity of Christ means that Jesus is God, Lord and creator. And we know that many cults and religions make claims about Jesus, that he was nothing more than a prophet, that he was a teacher, that he was an angel who became man, that he was created. But none of that can be backed by the word of God. And so we know that we must stand firmly on the word of God, right? So the Bible teaches that Jesus is not merely someone who is a lot like God or someone who has a very close walk with God. Rather, Jesus is the most high God himself. Titus 2.13 says that as Christians, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And upon seeing the resurrected Christ, Thomas cried out in John 20, 28, My Lord and my God. And likewise, the book of Hebrews 
gives us God the Father's direct testimony about Christ and says, But of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And in Matthew 16, we know Jesus himself claims to be the Son of God. Another way the Bible teaches that Jesus is, the, is God is by showing that he has all of the attributes of God. See, he knows everything. Matthew 16, 21, he is everywhere. Matthew 18, 20, he has all power. Matthew 8, 26 through 27, he depends on nothing outside of himself for life. John 1, 4, he rules over everything. Matthew 28, 18, he never began to exist and will never cease to exist. John 1, 1, he is our creator. Colossians 1, 16. And the prince of all preachers, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, he says this, whatever God is, Christ is. The very likeness of God, the very Godhead of Godhead, the very deity of deity is in Christ Jesus. So, so why is it so important that Jesus Christ is in fact God? Well, his deity must be affirmed or the entire doctrine of salvation is affected. Jesus had to be truly God so that he could satisfy God's wrath and secure for us true righteousness and life. You see, without this, without this doctrine, there is no Christianity. None. So let's recap. He is God. He is Lord. He is creator. And as creator, he made things good for his glory and for our good. But, and this is the next part of the story, we messed it up, right? We messed it up, which takes us to the next point. Oh, which is? Original sin. What is it? The doctrine of original sin teaches that through Adam we are born into sin and are sinners by nature and choice. We're sinners not only because we're born sinners by nature, but because we do, in fact, sin because we like it. Because of the fall of man in the garden, we have inherited this inescapable sin nature. And the New Testament says that we are slaves to sin, Romans 6. And in Genesis 6, 5, we have a disposition toward wickedness. And that everyone sins because it's our nature to sin. But that's not the nature that was originally given to us by God. We were originally innocent and good. But now, no one is good. No one seeks God. All fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, and we are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2. Jonathan Edwards, he says this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Which leads us to why this doctrine is so incredibly important. Why is it important? To the depth that you understand your sinfulness is the depth that you understand God's mercy, which leads to true repentance and faith. See, without knowing the true consequences of our sin, we can never fully understand the reality of God's mercy and grace. Without this, there is no Christianity. Our sin, our idolatry, our desire to be king, our desire for our own kingdom has consequences. 
Sin has terrible consequences, which is death, Romans 6, 23, and eternal separation from God's goodness, Revelation 14, 10, and we deserve those consequences because that would be just. But God, who is rich in mercy, he stepped in to save us. How do we know that? How do we know? He's revealed it to us through his holy and sufficient word, which is the next point on our note, C, Canon of Scripture. What is it? The Bible is the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God. It is necessary, authoritative, clear, and sufficient for all of faith and life. Therefore, it's pretty important that we know which books belong and which ones do not. Right? And the books that belong, we know, form what's called the canon of Scripture. Right? Greg Bonson, he claimed that the notion of a canon is at the theological foundation of the Christian faith. Without revealed words available to God's people, there would be no exercise by God of lordship over us as servants, and there would be no sure promise from God our Savior to save us as sinners. See, understanding the canon correctly will strengthen our faith and our life and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Scripture is revealed by God and recognized by man, 1 Peter 1, 23-25, and God has protected his word throughout history as it's been copied and translated and distributed. And we call this providential preservation. We see that in Matthew 24, 35 and John three twenty seven. So why is canon important? Why is this so important? Because if there's no canon, there is no coherent message. And if there's no coherent message, there is no Christianity. We have empirical evidence. It was Vodi Bakum who said, I believe it because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during a lifetime of other eyewitnesses who report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim their writings are divine and not human in origin. Ultimately, because the Bible says so. So thus far, in our doctrine summary, we, we've covered Jesus is God, our Lord, our Creator, and He created all things good. We messed it up, and He stepped in to save us. And we know this because God's revealed it to us through his canonized word. God has also revealed to us a Trinitarian Godhead, which leads us to the next point. T, the Trinity. The term Trinity is not found in the Bible. But the concept is very clearly there. And the implications of this mystery are stunningly beautiful. J.I. Packer, he states that the historical doctrine of the Trinity confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought the human mind has ever been asked to handle. It's not easy, but it is true. So what is it? What is the Trinity? The Trinity is that God is one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, all responsible for all creation and salvation. There is one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4. God is three persons, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 
and each person is fully God. Matthew 28, 19. It's not three separate gods. It's not three modes of a God. It is three persons in one God. So why is it so important that we understand this doctrine? Because without the Trinity, you have no creation and no salvation. None. And therefore, we have no Christianity. Regarding salvation, all three persons were there in the beginning and responsible for creation. Genesis 1, 1 through 26, John 1, 1 through 3. Regarding salvation, the Father plans it. Romans 8, 29 and 30, the Son accomplishes it. John 6, 37 through 44, and the Spirit applies it. Romans 5, 5. This is good news. Really good news. This is the gospel, guys. Now, at the heart of the gospel, there are two very, very specific things. That's the R and the I of our doctrine acronym, resurrection and the incarnation. And, and technically, the, the I comes before the R, right? The incarnation comes before the resurrection. But that would make our cool little acronyms say doctrine. <laughs> and that is not a word, okay? But for today, we're going to go in order. So we're going to look at I. So skip ahead, go to I. I, the incarnation, what is it? The incarnation is the event where the second person of the Trinity, the word Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about an event that took place in time. At a particular point in history, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature without subtracting from himself any of his divine attributes. John 1, 1 through 14, he was truly God. That's the D we just covered. And he is also truly human. He is the God-man. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it tells us that the Son of God did not consider his equality with God as something to be used for his own purpose. Instead, he voluntarily condescended and took the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In this condescension, our Savior did not lose any of his divine attributes. Though he did veil or empty himself of glory. See, the incarnation, it's a mystery. We can't, we can't fully comprehend the reality that, that, that Jesus is truly God and Jesus is truly human. But it is very important that we understand that Jesus has to be truly God and he has to be truly human. Why? Why does he have to be truly human? So let's look at that. His humanity must be affirmed or the entire doctrine of salvation is affected. He must be truly human because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which sinned should pay for sin. I'll say that again. He must be truly human. 
because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which sinned should pay for sin. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. If Christ is not also truly human, there is no Christianity. What we can understand about the incarnation is that it reveals God's infinite love and grace. See, he did not leave us alone in our sin, but he entered into the misery and the muck and the mire of this fallen world without becoming a sinner himself. And he took on the punishment that we deserve and he died on the cross. But that is not the end of the story, which leads us to the next point, the R, the resurrection. So what is it? The resurrection is the event where Jesus Christ died. He was buried and rose again on the third day. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a historical fact, but can and should be a daily reality of our faith. We must never downplay the glory and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By our sin in Adam, we granted the right for death to claim us. By Christ's righteous life, he destroyed any claim death had over him and those who are united to him through faith. Death threw its worst at our God, killing him. But our Father was working in the midst of all of that, using death as his instrument to pour out his just wrath on our sin and raising Christ to life to prove his wrath was, in fact, satisfied. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Why is it so important that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. His resurrection is paramount to our justification. That is, that the substitutionary atonement made by Christ was accepted by the Father. See, our justification rests on the credited righteousness of Christ so that the reality of that transaction is linked to Christ's resurrection. Had Christ not been raised, we would not have a mediator whose redeeming work on our behalf was acceptable by God. However, Christ is risen. Praise God, he is risen indeed. And those of us who are in Christ have been given new life. And that's the next point on your notes. N, new life or being born again. So what is it? We are born spiritually dead. Therefore, God must regenerate our hearts. See, the Christian life, it's not about becoming a nice person. It's about becoming a new person. It's about a supernaturally transformed, brand new heart that you cannot achieve no matter how much you will it with the law of God written on it. 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, Ephesians 2.1, the Christian life is a call to repentance and faith 
in Christ alone for salvation. This is being born again. So why is it so important that you are born again? So that we will respond to the gospel and continue to grow in the likeness of Christ. See, without the ability to respond, there are no Christians. And if there's no Christians, there is no Christianity. It is absolutely possible to spend your whole life, you, you, you grew up in the church, absolutely possible to grow up your whole life in the church and never actually put your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you born again? Has your heart been so radically changed that you actually have a desire for the things of God? These are the questions we should be asking ourselves every single day, especially if you grew up in the church. And if you haven't been born again, you should be begging and pleading, God, please, please give me a desire for you. This is David in Psalm 51. He's crying out, have mercy on me, O God. Cleanse me. Renew a right spirit within me. Please. And you know that you've been given a new heart by the fruit that you bear, by your sanctification. It's Galatians 5. Being a new creation is for your good and for the good of those around you and ultimately for the glory of God which leads to the consummation of all of that and of all creation. That takes us to the next and last point here, the E, end times, end times or eschatology. So what is it? It's the return of our king and how we are to live in light of his return. And as we learned last week, there are things that very solid, Bible-believing pastors, preachers, and scholars have disagreed on and debated about. But there are things that every view does, in fact, agree on, and those are not up for debate. And that is this, Christ is coming back, Revelations 1, 7 and 8. He will judge the living and the dead, 2 Timothy 4, 1. Death will be defeated, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. And there will be an eternal new heaven and new earth, Revelation 21, 1. So why does that matter? Why does it matter? Because God bringing to completion what he began is what gives us incredible hope and unending assurance. If Christ is not coming back to finish what he started, what are we doing here? Right? What are we doing? Let's pack it up. Let's go home. Grab a coffee on your way out. Right? What's the point? The purpose of eschatology is ultimately about hope and assurance. The study of biblical eschatology is a motivation for godly, holy living. If you understand eschatology, you understand that the sufferings of this present time are absolutely real. 
and they're painful and they are excruciating at times. But they are not comparable to the glory that is to come. Also, biblical eschatology does not teach that the story ends well for everyone. It exists as a frightening warning to those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Eschatology warns everyone that there is, in fact, eternal punishment and banishment from God's kingdom in the presence of God for those who do not repent and believe. We should be doing what John the Baptist did in Luke 3, warning people to flee the wrath that is to come. So there it is. There's our eight major doctrines. And I hope by now you are seeing that doctrine really, really matters. It's really important. Really, really important. So what I want to do now is I want to spend a few minutes breaking down our theme verse here, 1 Timothy 4.16. I've broken it down into four parts, so we have four main points. So first, let's read the text again. 1 Timothy 4.16, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So first, doctrine is interactive. Doctrine is interactive. Let's look at this first part. Keep a close watch. Doctrine is not something that sits on a book on your shelf that you pick up every once in a while, maybe. You're actually changed by doctrine as you interact with it. And the word here means exactly what it says, to keep a close watch. We're to pay attention, to pay attention. Now, we, we know, because we read the whole verse, we know what we're paying attention to, doctrine and life. But, but for, for a moment, let's just focus here on this one thing. Why do you think Paul is telling Timothy to pay attention? Why is Paul telling Timothy, dude, pay attention, pay attention, I think the answer is a few verses earlier in 4.1. Paul claims that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful teachings. And then in 4.7 he says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This is the point. There will be people in your life, teachers, pastors, people, in your life who claim to be of the faith, who are teaching things that are absolutely wrong. And, and while it's easy for us to be swayed by great communicators, by great talkers, I, I mean, they're compelling, right? They're really fun to listen to. They really resonate with you. Man, I, I really, I, that makes sense to me. I like that. I really like what he says. But maybe, quite possibly, it's wrong. Paul is saying here, while this is happening, while you're being taught, you must be paying attention. How many of you have ever been listening to someone, pastor, teacher, you've been listening to them for a long time, only to 
find out that he's actually pretty far off on some foundational Christian doctrines. I have. I absolutely have. And it is emotionally taxing when that happens. This, this is a guy or, or a girl, woman, maybe you've been following a teacher um, that, that's been teaching incorrect things. You, you, you look at their life and you go, I want to be like them. I want to I follow their Christian walk, right? And what happens? You find out, I don't think they believe in the Trinity. I don't think they believe that Christ is, in fact, God. I don't know if they're even Christian. It's excruciating. But as you interact with doctrine, you must be paying attention. And what, we're paying, what are we paying attention to? That's the next point on your notes. Doctrine is biblical. Doctrine is biblical. So keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So first off, it's biblical because it's literally right there in the Bible. The word teaching is referring to doctrine. That's, that's what we're paying attention to, right? And so that word teaching in the context of this verse, Paul is talking to Timothy about God, about Scripture, about salvation, about the church, about the end of all things. He's talking to Timothy about doctrine. But don't miss this. It's not, it's not two separate things. It's not doctrine and then life, or, or, or life and then doctrine. No, they, they go hand in hand. They are fused together. You don't get one without the other. The word yourself is specifically tied to what we do in our life. I'm going to give you two things to think about for a second. I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to give you a statement. Here's my question. Does what you do in your daily life right now reflect what you claim you believe? Does what you do in your life right now reflect what you claim you believe? Here's my statement. What you do in your life right now reflects what you truly believe. And there may not be a more sobering thought here. But this is sanctification, guys, and praise God we have help, right? We have help in our life by the many believers around us who are calling us away from our sin and back to Christ. We have help in our doctrine by keeping it according to his word. We are to be keeping a close watch on our life and our doctrine because it's biblical, so what's the next point? Let's look at the next point. Doctrine is historical. Doctrine is historical. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And then it says, persist in this. Persist in what? Well, watching our life and our doctrine, right? So throughout history, the church has persisted in watching its doctrine and its life. Anyone ever heard of this guy? His name is Polycarp. Anyone ever heard of him? Polycarp? He was mentored by the Apostle John. He was born in 65 AD and he died in 155 AD. The Apostle John actually appointed Polycarp the Bishop of Smyrna. 
What's fascinating is not only do we have the writings of the Apostle John right here, we have writings from Polycarp, the guy that John mentored, that do nothing but affirm what's here. And we have guys after Polycarp, so on and so forth, that have been discipled. There's a line you can follow. And, and it's amazing to me how we can look back 2,000 years and see what Christian saints have believed about the Trinity, about the deity of Christ, about the humanity of Christ, and know we're on the right track. Praise God. Persisting is not something Paul is saying only to you right now. Though he is, in fact, saying it to you right now, he's been saying this to every Christian that's ever read this text. We are to persist in watching our doctrine and our life. Why? This is the next point. Doctrine is practical. Doctrine is practical. So why? For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Nowhere in 1 Timothy are the consequences of whether Timothy heeds Paul's instructions clearer than in 4.16. See, the very salvation of Timothy and the Ephesian Christians hinges upon his willingness to pay attention to his doctrine and his life. This is absolutely true of every single one of us here. Our salvation and that of others depends on how we guard our lives and our doctrine. Now, Paul is not abandoning salvation by grace alone. That's not what I'm saying here. But what Paul is doing is declaring a very important biblical truth. And R.C. Sproul puts it this way. While salvation is of the Lord, he has graciously decided to redeem people through the use of secondary means, such as the preaching of the gospel by his servants. How can those who do not know Jesus call on him unless someone tells them the good news? And how can someone proclaim the gospel unless he is sent by the Spirit through the call of the church? This is Romans 10, 14 and 15. John MacArthur echoes this. He says, Though salvation is God's work, it's his pleasure to do it through human instruments. See, our, our creator, God, does not need us to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't need you. He does not need me. And contrary to a popular song, he would have been just fine in heaven without us. God has graciously chosen the foolishness of fallen human preaching to bring salvation to the world, 1 Corinthians 1.21. God is consistently correcting and refining our understanding of his truth, making us able to avoid the errors that have prevented so many from believing the true gospel. Doctrine matters. Lives are dependent on it. And guarding our lives through the diligent pursuit of holiness is one of the means by which we and others are saved. In 2 Peter, professing Christians continue in unrepentant sin. So again, 
This is 2 Peter. There are professing Christians that are continuing in unrepentant sin. Okay? And Peter's making the point that their blatant and unrepentant sin can lead unbelievers to think that Jesus has no power at all to change anything. You see, when, when we say things like we are not of this world, and we put that bumper sticker on our car, and the guy that just cut us off, we quickly go around and flip him off because he made us mad. What are we saying to the unbeliever? When we do everything we can to cater our Christian congregational worship services to the world so that we will attract the unbelievers, so that they'll, they'll feel comfortable and, and they'll be entertained, what are we truly saying? The true gospel is uncomfortable. The true gospel is offensive. And the true gospel changes lives. Has, has an unbeliever ever asked you, why are you a Christian? Have you ever thought about that yourself? Why are you a Christian? Why do you believe what you believe? Why? I know I've asked myself that before, and my answer has typically been, well, it's changed my life. Has it? Has the gospel changed your life? An old theologian, he said this, doctrine will be of little avail if there's no corresponding goodness and holiness of life. I think it's pretty clear that doctrine itself is not what saves you, but it points you to the one who does. And we will never, ever be able to control what the world thinks of us as Christians, never. But by God's grace and mercy, may we pay attention to what we say and what we do, and may it reflect the glory and honor of our amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Great and glorious God, Please help us to love your word. Please, God, give us the desire to train ourselves in the teachings and doctrines found in your word. Help our lives to reflect our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that through the hearing and studying and training of your word and by the work of the Spirit, our faith would be sustained and that anyone here who does not know you would be drawn to you by your grace, placing their faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We confess that we are utterly dependent on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and plead for continued mercy. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see all for your glory. We love you. And together we say, amen.